Welcome to episode 97 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer-in-residence at National Geographic Society and author of the upcoming book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. Dr. Earle was named the first of Time Magazine's Heroes for the Planet. She's pioneered research on marine ecosystems with a special focus on exploration, conservation, and the development of new technologies for effectively assessing the deep sea and other remote environments. She's former chief scientist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and founder of Mission Blue, Sea Alliance, and Deep Ocean Exploration and Research. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer in residence at National Geographic Society and author of the upcoming book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. Dr. Earle, welcome to the Climate Champions. It's great to be on board. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? My early years were largely spent in Florida. I was a witness to the transformation of places that I knew and loved as a kid on the land and certainly in the ocean, the seagrass meadows that are so important to generating oxygen and capturing carbon, the mangroves that likewise really important in contributing oxygen to the atmosphere and capturing carbon. That incredible process that happened many millions of years ago called photosynthesis, the basic driver of making Earth habitable for humans and much of the rest of life on Earth. Anyway, as a young scientist, began to putting things together, understanding that we are a part of nature, we're not apart from it. That what we do to the natural systems has to be carefully calculated so that we don't destroy the very systems that keep us alive. And if we have just been oblivious, we meaning my species, humankind. My species too. Yeah, and those listening, I trust. But it has come to a point now where the evidence is clear that what we have done and are doing to the natural systems has a price that we are now paying in terms of planetary change of chemistry, the the climate with increased storms of higher intensity, the heat that is unprecedented in terms of human experience anyway, that over long periods of geological time, climate overall has been much hotter and much colder with waves of extinction and recovery. But humans have not been a causative agent in previous times, but now we are. In the Anthropocene, something that geologists now mark as a time that began in the middle of the 20th century, let's say 1950, that a new geological age with our impact clearly marked. 
this is amazing. I have lived my life in basically two major time periods, Holocene and now the Anthropocene, because I have been around since before 1950 and a witness to these remarkable, remarkable changes that have come about because humankind has consumed the natural systems that underpin our existence. It has fostered our prosperity, of course. We cut the trees, we use the lumber, we use the space where natural systems once flourished. We now have occupied much of the land with agriculture and with our cities, our, our roads, so much that has been, at the time, seemed to be a good idea, seemed to be good for us. It's only now that we are able to look at the world as a whole and realize that, of course, we will consume nature, all creatures do, in order to survive. But no creature has been so comprehensive in converting the natural systems to other purposes than human beings. And there are limits to what we can take from nature, consume without having consequences. And we're seeing those consequences. The climate scientists say we have about 10 years to take the knowledge that we now have that is unprecedented. That's the good news. We have the superpower of knowing. Imagine if we didn't know about what we have done and what we might do in the future. Not only do we know, which is good because we could do something about it. That's right. But now we have the technology that could actually empower us to do something about it as well. Well, the technology that is most important is communication, exactly what you are doing. If people don't know, really know, and embrace it and incorporate it in their everyday lives, it's not good enough for scientists to know. It's not good enough for the knowledge to be there. Humankind across the board need to incorporate that knowledge into their behavior. And that hasn't yet happened. We're still burdened by complacency, by people who look at the evidence and they choose to ignore it. And it's perverse. We have the evidence, we know what to do, but getting the real shift in attitude and in policies, we have laws on the books right now that are perverse because they reinforce bad behavior. When you meet people that don't believe the science, don't believe the Earth's climate is changing, how do you attempt to convince them otherwise? Well, logic should be the answer to that question. Look at the evidence. We're human beings. We have the capacity to see with our own eyes and experience their own lives. The evidence is clear cut. I, in some cases, simply don't try, but rather focus my time and my energy in trying to do everything possible to work with those who are making a difference and who can lead us into a better place. If we get a critical number of people on board to shift in the direction that will take us to having a peaceful relationship with the natural world, others will be drawn along as a part of it. We can't convince everyone. Some are just determined to live in their bubble and not be open to looking at the evidence even though they may be suffering from floods or suffering from heat or suffering from other consequences of climate change, they find some other way to escape the obvious.
Do you have any personal drivers that keep you focused on climate change mitigation? I have children. I have four grandsons. I see the world through their eyes. Everyone should try to do that. If you don't have a child of your own, you should borrow one and look at the world. Look at the future. Look at the past. Look at how all of us are the beneficiaries of our predecessors who have done amazing things by using our minds to develop language, to develop music, to develop art, to develop mathematics, to create the highest level of prosperity that our species has ever known. But we also now are able, using that capacity to learn and put into practice the knowledge that we have, we now can see that our very existence is at risk because of how much we have changed. The only place in the universe that is truly suitable for us, Earth, and the natural systems that make everything we care about possible, that has been consumed and converted to our use and given us the prosperity that we now enjoy, but we're now faced with a cost that we hadn't known about until we had the ability to put the pieces together. We now have technology that enables us to see and measure change, to look and to make the connections between what's happening on one side of the planet and how it impacts the rest of the planet. I was chief scientist of NOAA in the early 1990s when the pieces came together to explain that phenomenon that now is widely understood to be known as El Nino, how the ocean currents affect the atmosphere, affect rainfall, affect the temperature of the planet. It took many years of many people making many observations to put together the pieces to look on a planetary scale how ocean currents and the atmosphere and the land all fit together as one interacting system. And further, to see how our actions as humans, superimposed on the natural systems, have, have really made such a difference, have consequences. So since the 1990s to the present time, 30 years of remarkable, unprecedented change, we're accelerating our impact, and the changes are accelerating as well. So you asked earlier if there were any specific moment when the light went on for me. It's been a gradual process. Now that light is flashing. I began to perceive how humans are altering the nature of nature and having impacts back to us and our future many years ago. But the urgency now is really upon me, upon us, upon the world. It's hard to ignore, although the, the signals were there even before I was born. But we couldn't put the pieces together with the clarity that we now have. Can you talk about what you specifically do to help mitigate climate change? Most importantly, I try to use my personal experience. I've been privileged to witness over decades under circumstances that are really special. That is to be able to explore the ocean from the inside out, living underwater on 10 occasions. That is spending weeks underwater to be able to really become a part of the ocean, to see the creatures who live there on their own terms, not just as scientists have over the ages, dragging nets and hooks and bringing life in the ocean to the surface and, and looking at dead animals. I have witnessed them alive and seen how they interact with close associations, how everything relates to everything else. 
hard to pick up anything without disturbing or seeing the connections with, with everything else. I've used more than 30 different kinds of submarines, submersibles, research submarines to be able to go deeper than most people have been able to go and stay longer, to have thousands of hours actually deep in the sea as a witness. It's like astronauts who go high in the sky. They come back from their experiences and they share them with the world. Imagine if they just came back from their time high in the sky and say, well, that was nice and kept all the information to themselves and didn't tell people what they saw and why it matters. So what do I do? I try to share the view, my privileged view as a scientist of being able to see the world as most people do, you know, from the land and living at this extraordinary time and having the ability to travel as I have, as many have, to go to other countries, especially in the last 30 years and at an increasing rate. I've been privileged to be able to travel widely. Marco Polo, eat your heart out. You know, what we can do today to see how others live, to be a witness to a much broader part of the planet than was possible any time in previous history. As individuals, we all become sort of super ambassadors as we visit other parts of the planet. But few have had the experience that I have had going deep in the ocean, coupled with, as a scientist, being able to put pieces together to see how the systems function and what the consequences are back to us, to connect the ocean with climate, to connect the living ocean, not just rocks and water, but to see that seagrass meadows, that coral reefs, kelp forests, that the ocean itself from the surface to the greatest depths is alive, filled with creatures that shape the way the planet functions. And protecting them means protecting us protecting planetary chemistry, protecting the climate, safeguarding our existence by safeguarding them. So by really focusing on everything I can do with the National Park System, working with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, an organization that embraces most governments and more than a thousand non-governmental organizations, science organizations, conservation organizations, all really looking at the importance of nature to us, and now doing everything possible to safeguard planetary processes by safeguarding planetary systems, the natural systems, working with the United Nations with a goal of at least 30% of the land, at least 30% of the ocean safeguarded as the underpinning of planetary chemistry and security by safeguarding the diversity of life. <laughs> it seems so obvious once you look at the evidence that this is most critical time perhaps in all of history because before we didn't know. And so complacency led us to where we are today. We thought that not just the ocean, <laughs> we thought the whole world was so big, so vast that nothing we could do could possibly disrupt circumstances that make Earth habitable for us. But now we know we're altering the very systems that keep us alive. I mean, astronauts, when they go up in space, first learn everything they can about their life support system. Why? Because their survival depends on it. And then they do everything they can to take care of it. Why? Because their existence, their survival depends on it. Okay, here we are, humankind. We should be learning everything we can about our life support system, the natural systems that make Earth the habitable planet. It is in a universe of really unfriendly options, alternatives. They really are not alternatives. Imagine enabling not just 8 or 10 billion people, but even 1 billion, 
even 100,000 people living on Mars, living on the moon, living on Jupiter, living somewhere else. Well, someday we may figure out how to colonize other parts of the universe. But this is our home. This is where our deepest roots are. This is our history. And it's anchored, we as a part of nature, it's anchored in the natural systems that make us humans, that make us possible as a species. We have the best chance we will ever have. Before we couldn't know, in the future it may be too late. It's already too late to safeguard species that have disappeared on our watch, on my watch. Once they're gone, they're gone. We've lost pieces of this big computer system that maintains Earth in a habitable state. Okay, so anybody who uses a computer or a cell phone, you start taking little pieces out. It doesn't work quite as well. It may not work at all, depending on which pieces you remove. We are busily destroying entire ecosystems, not just individual species. We are, I mean, perversely undermining the capacity of Earth, this living planet. Life will go on one way or the other, more or less, than one hopes, one imagines. Because going back four and a half billion years, Earth has been in existence with rocks and water, then rocks, water, and life. But until half a billion years ago, more or less, multicellular creatures were really scarce. And our existence has been possible only in the very last few million years, really essentially for civilization, the last 11,000 years. Although our species has been around longer, but our prosperity really began to take off about 11,000 years ago. When you think about how quickly we have unraveled the, the systems that took so long to form, four and a half billion years to create a planet that works in our favor, four and a half decades to significantly unravel those very systems. That's what I've been witnessing. That's what drives me. It's a lot more difficult to build than it is to destroy. Right. Look at New York City. Hurricane Sandy, in a stroke, unraveled our human efforts. Can you talk about your biggest setbacks? I guess I'm experiencing it right now. It's the sense of urgency that has grown in me as a witness and the frustration of not being taken seriously, despite the evidence. And I'm not alone. There are many who say, here it is. <laughs> I think one of the most frustrating setbacks, I suppose, came notably when I was chief scientist at NOAA and observed that based on the evidence supplied by fishermen, that bluefin tuna had been reduced to about 10% of what they had been 20 years prior in the North Atlantic Ocean. I made note of this at a fisheries council meeting. And I said, what are we trying to do? Exterminate them? Because if so, we only have 10% left to go. That's when they started calling me the Sturgeon General. <laughs> because I was making a fuss about taking too much out of the ocean. And at the time, I was not as keenly aware as I am today of the consequences to the carbon cycle connected to climate and the extraction of ocean wildlife. Tuna is a headliner. Tuna has become, in the public perception, to be like chicken or, or rice or something that is easily come by. Like we talk about harvesting the sea, as if we have planted something there, as if we have made an investment and we're, we're recovering some of our investment. But the ocean tuna 
and other ocean wildlife. They're all free, free goods, which is part of the reason people are so excited about going to the ocean to take free goods. Fishing, they're free. They have an accounting base of zero. So the large-scale industrial fishing now is not only subsidized with taxpayer money, yours and mine, and around the world, other countries similarly supporting unsustainable extraction of ocean wildlife. And they're not accounting for the cost of what they're actually taking. But all of us are paying the cost in terms of not just taking individual carbon-based units. (laughs) We are carbon-based units. Trees are. (laughs) Lobsters are. Fish are. Cats and dogs and horses and cows. We're all living carbon-based units, if you will. Think of it like Star Trek, like Spock. We're carbon-based units in a universe. (laughs) Here we are. But we are not accounting for what we're taking. We've begun to account for trees and realize that by planting trees, we're helping the climate crisis. We're capturing carbon, sequestering carbon. Soil is now recognized as a major part of the climate issue. Sequestering carbon, the tundra in the Arctic, releasing carbon now that the planet is warming. Understanding how all these pieces come together. I want to say, follow the carbon, follow the carbon. I'm not alone in saying that. Look at the carbon cycle and what we are doing translated to life on Earth, extracting hundreds of millions of tons of ocean wildlife out of the ocean, not only releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it breaks the system that captures and sequesters carbon, just as when we burn or clear cut a forest, we have destroyed the natural carbon capturing mechanisms. So knowing this, If we're really smart and beyond smart, beyond knowing, if we're wise, we would do everything in our power to protect and restore forests and other natural land-based carbon capturing and sequestering systems. And in the ocean, we would do everything we can to restore health to the populations of life in the ocean. And we would stop the perverse subsidies and stop the industrial high seas fishing like now, instantly. Who would suffer? (laughs) Really, financially, nobody, because the subsidies keep these industrial fleets that are harming the ocean, affecting climate, would take them out of business. And there are a lot of other things that would also end in the process. The human suffering that goes into the slavery that is connected to high seas fishing. In addition, the trafficking, not just of humans, but of arms and drugs under the cover of industrial fishing on the high seas. In the waters that are governed by nations, our coastal waters out 200 miles, actions are already underway to take some serious moves to protect large areas, to reverse years of exploiting them without any concern about how much was being taken. That goal of 30% of coastal waters, 30% of the high seas by 2030 within the next 10 years is a move in the right direction. It's by itself not enough. We need overarching policies and individual behaviors that will underpin the laws and policies. But the key really is knowing, knowing not just the facts and figures, but knowing in your heart, knowing emotionally that we really are at a time as never before in human history, when everything we care about is on the line. What we do or what we fail to do right now will shape the next 10,000 years and beyond. The next 10 years really 
is a moment in time as never before and maybe as never again when we can safeguard civilization, safeguard the world that our children, our grandchildren will experience. And we're experiencing some of it, of course, right now. Well, your setback is a setback for all of us. Right. I'm just being swept along with the rest. Can you talk about the success you're most proud of? Well, as a mom, I'm really excited to see my children and my grandchildren benefiting from those who've gone before and perhaps to some extent what I've been able to give them. I don't mean in terms of money because that's really insignificant compared to what I've been able to share in terms of experience. And I think that's what drives much of my species. You know, we want our children and those who follow to have a better life. You want them to take what you have learned and apply it to their life and go and do better. You want a better world. And so I have a measure of satisfaction in terms of seeing them incorporate the knowledge that has been special to my lifetime. We've learned more since the middle of the 20th century, perhaps, than during all preceding history. And all of us are beneficiaries of that. But we're also, we're also experiencing the greatest time of loss. And so in addition to what I can do personally with my own family, trying to look at the rest of the world and share the view. And I think two things. I started a company working with crafty engineers. I'm not an engineer, but I, I know what I don't know. <laughs> and it's what humans do. We partner with others. We work together to get from here to get to another place. Actually, I've started three companies, most recently Deep Ocean Exploration and Research, that really is directed to trying to solve the problems of going deep in the ocean. My daughter and son-in-law have taken that company that I started and really made it prosper. I'm not directly involved with it anymore, except as a witness to seeing what they're doing to develop submersibles, to develop underwater robots, to develop manipulator technology so that deep in the sea, whether it's in a manned submersible or a robotic system, you can actually do things and gather evidence and bring back to those who never get wet or never go in the ocean to see what it's like down there, to measure it. I think the other avenue that I'm, I'm really excited about is being able to start an organization, Mission Blue, where as Explorer in Residence at National Geographic, and with the TED Prize that I was given in 2009 to jumpstart the idea that on my watch, on your watch, in this time, in this 21st century, we can use our individual and collective power to embrace the natural systems with care, especially in the ocean for me, because that's where my expertise is greatest, to develop a network of protected areas, hope spots, large enough to protect the blue heart of the planet, the ocean. So starting with the TED Prize in 2009 and with allies who have come together, we have more than 200 partner organizations and working closely with IUCN and of course with National Geographic and with scientists around the world, identifying critical areas that if protected can really have a magnified impact on restoring health to the ocean, maintaining the diversity of life, looking at special places that have a magnified significance in terms of carbon capture and oxygen generation of maintaining the fabric of life coral reefs, seagrass areas, of course, but also in the deep sea, the high seas, if 
in a stroke in our watch in this 10-year time, we could safeguard the high seas, the place that is the common heritage, if you will, of all of us beyond national jurisdiction. All nations, all people everywhere derive benefits from half of the world that is basically the high seas beyond any individual nation. It takes all of us working together to look at this blue part of the planet and say, we want to safeguard our life support system. So I'm pleased to be a part of this movement of embracing the natural world with enhanced recognition to safeguard the natural systems. We have now more than 140 places with champions in places around the world, hope spots that are taking it upon themselves with their communities, with their leaders, to do what is now possible, to go from where we are to get to a better place, ultimately to go from less than 3% of the ocean proactively protected to have at least 30% by 2030, but coupled with that recognition that, as my colleague and friend and hero, Ed Wilson, calling for half the world by 2050 to be fully safeguarded, half of the natural world to restore what we can to protect what remains. At National Geographic, the Christine Seas Project, similarly looking, where are the last places that are still in pretty good shape? Can we embrace them with care? Can we safeguard them as if our lives depend on it? Because they do. Come on, understand as astronauts do. It's your life support system. I almost want to say it's your life support system, stupid, but I won't say that. I'll just say You've got to protect nature as if your lives depend on it, because in fact, now we know our existence is not just about a planet that is blessed with rocks and water. It's a planet blessed with rocks, water, and life, and time. Four and a half billion years of time that in four and a half decades, we have really significantly damaged. But there's time. Not much. Not much. I mean, 10 years. 10 years is the most critical time. And why? Because now we know. If only we could have started 50 years ago, our chances of survival in the long term, long and enduring future for humankind would be much easier than starting from where we are now. We are perilously close to tipping points in terms of biodiversity loss, of changing chemistry, of seeing the natural systems that maintain Earth within a temperature range that is favorable to us, with a chemistry generating oxygen, capturing carbon, having nitrates in just the right places in just the right time, phosphates, sulfur, all the chemistry of life on Earth that has worked in our favor <laughs> until we began disrupting it, significantly poisoning the natural systems, significantly breaking the links that insects critically have developed over the ages as pollinators, as consumers of vegetation, if you will, but passing that along to birds, passing it along to other forms of life, this extraordinarily interconnected fabric of life. And in the ocean, taking krill from Antarctica, why would we even think of going all the way into polar oceans and extracting huge amounts of the critical links in the food chains, in the carbon cycle, in the nitrogen cycle, in the phosphorus cycle, in all of the chemistry that drives planetary functions, going in and taking tons of these small creatures that are critical links, like the pieces of our computer that make it work. 
they are elements that we should protect with heightened concern. The small fish in the ocean, similarly, are critical links in the transfer of energy. Sunlight driving photosynthesis, driving the small photosynthesizers, the phytoplankton in the ocean, just as trees on the land capture carbon and pass it along through birds, through insects, through mammals, to us. I mean, we're part of the system. One example that helps illustrate the concern and also the solution was articulated by the International Monetary Fund at the conference in Davos in 2020, early in 2020, before the pandemic really had its major impact on the world. They took it upon themselves, researchers involved with the International Monetary Fund, to look at whales. What's a whale worth? Well, we know what a whale's worth dead. You can calculate the pounds of meat, the barrels of oil. But what's, what's a whale worth alive? as a part of the carbon cycle. We're now thinking in terms of carbon credits, carbon value, carbon storage, sequestration. The calculation those crafty economists came up with, the standing crop, if you will, of whales, population of whales today is worth more than a trillion dollars based on a carbon they hold. And it's a living carbon. It's not just one year. It's a lifetime. Whales can live as long as humans sometimes more than most humans, and holding carbon. But more than that, they're passing nutrients. When they consume little fish or krill or other animals that they take from the sea, they not only store it in their bodies as carbon, but they put nutrients back into the ocean that powers the phytoplankton, that keeps the cycle going, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, all the cycles of chemistry the living ocean, the living planet. It's powered by life, individuals such as you and I, the birds, the flocks of birds that consume whatever it is they take, insects or seeds, but they put nutrients back that keeps the soil fertile, that powers the plants. I mean, it's a cycle, a living cycle. I mean, I learned this as a kid in grade school, but it never really clicked into my brain about how our activity could modify or alter or undermine this powerhouse cycle of life. We talk about the cycle of nature, but don't we get it when we interfere by taking krill? We break those cycles. The whales, we don't kill them directly, but we kill them by taking their food. When you talk about the krill, it reminds me when I used to write software for a living, yeah. when you made changes, you would often break little things. And the bigger the changes, the more likely you were to break something that used to work. And it yes. seems like we're yes. really messing around in the code now. And the regression testing, which is yes. to go back and see if everything works, is to see whether we still exist. It's pretty, a pretty big gamble Correct. we're taking. Yeah, exactly. It's the biggest experiment that we've ever conducted. But the great thing is, we know enough to know that, as climate scientists are saying, we've got about 10 years right now, the most important time in history, to pull back the perverse actions we know are causing damage. It's not a mystery. You've talked about the 10 years number, and I agree with you. My question to you is, when you look into the future 20 or 30 or 40 years, what do you see? Where are humans? Where is the Earth? It depends on what we do or fail to do right now. And it doesn't mean that we start making change in 2030. 
we have to start yesterday, well, today, <laughs> as soon as possible. And some nations are stepping up. Chile has safeguarded on the order of 40% of their exclusive economic zone. Great start. But they have the power to halt commercial extraction of wildlife or to at least seriously modify what can be taken. To understand the limits, we don't really have our minds wrapped around the recognition that there is no excess in nature. No great quantities of ocean wildlife just waiting for us to turn them into fish meal or fish fillets or fish sticks or fish whatever we want to make of them. These are wild animals. How many wild birds can we take to sustain seven or eight billion people? Not many. Not many. We need to come to grips with our ability to generate food by growing it under circumstances that are different from what we're now doing. We need to take what we now know and truly apply it. The knowledge is there. The frustration is the amount of time it takes to bring people on board and to change the laws as well as to change the habits. We have laws that favor industrial fishing, industrial clear-cutting of forests, of supporting continued extraction of oil and gas, although we know that the best thing would be right now, keep it in the ground, really take the subsidies that we're applying in places that are reinforcing the problems and apply those resources to solving the problems. What advice do you have for people that want to help? <laughs> Go for it. Don't get discouraged. Don't let the deniers drag you down. Anything specific that they can do? Look in the mirror. Absolutely. Look in the mirror. See who you are. What is your power, your superpower that is unique to you? And we know that no two people are alike. I can't tell you what to do better than you can tell yourself. Are you good with numbers? Are you good with kids? Or do you have a way with words? Whatever it is, use your gift that makes you, you. Mr. Rogers used to say to the kids, you're special. There's nobody else in the world like you. And I say, use what you've got. A kid in Texas, as a teenager, started picking up the trash on the beach, not because somebody told her to do it, but because she could see there was trash on the beach that needed to be picked up. And other people saw this kid out there doing it. So they started following her, started helping. It turned into the movement in the 1970s of picking up trash for the Center for Marine Conservation and is now the Ocean Conservancy, really doing what they can to take back what we put in the ocean. What is it that you can do that you see? What can you do in your home, in your individual choices about what to wear, what to eat or not, where to go, how you go to where you go? Are there things that you can start in your community? in your country. Be a voice for anyone out there in the rest of the world who might connect with you to make a difference. The world really moves through collaboration more than competition, more than competition. It's by joining together to find the common ground and take this moment in time that has never been possible before and will never come again to move from decline to recovery and finally making peace with the planet. You ask, where might we be in 2040, 2050? <laughs> you should look within your own capacity to see the future. What you can do can change this trajectory from decline to recovery.
even in the small influence you might have with the choices you make times 7 billion really represent power when we need positive power the most. Wow. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. We've got to do something quick, and that's a fact. Dr. Earl is a witness to the human impact. We used to capture lots of carbon gas with many more coral reefs and meadows of seagrass. Human carbon use, it is a vice. We're starting to see our natural systems pay the price. We have to act urgently or face defeat. We already have unprecedented heat. We can't wait. Now is the time to engage. We're witnessing a new geological age. We've got to cut back on carbon <laughs> consumption. That is your insistence. If we don't, we're going to threaten our own existence. Some folks are in a bubble, in a sleep slumber. We have to wake them up, get to a critical number. With our science, art, and music, we've shown humans can be wise. To understand what's at stake, look through our grandchildren's eyes. We're not acting fast enough. There's no time to be lost. The planet will survive, but at an incredible cost. As a witness of the deep sea, you shared with us the notion that we have to protect the blue heart of the planet, our at-risk ocean. <laughs> Astronauts are high in the sky. You went deep in the sea. You want our save our planetary chemistry. It took four and a half billion years to create our planet's breath. And in only four and a half decades, we are threatening it with death. What were we thinking taking Antarctica krill, its whales, our ecosystems, and ourselves were going to kill? It's true in the future, the universe we may roam, but come on, let's take care of the earth. It is our home. They called you the Sturgeon General. You said we were bringing nature to Runa, reduction of 90% of bluefin tuna. We need more ocean protection. Keep it pristine like new. That's why you jump-started Mission Blue to measure the cash value. Some might use scales, but there's a trillion bucks of carbon sequestration in living whales. Look in the mirror. Find out what makes you you and identify the special things that you can do. When you were a girl, you saw the earth as a space pearl. Thank you for your wisdom, Dr. Sylvia Earl. <laughs> well, I am impressed. <laughs> Thank you. That's what you can do. You are special. <laughs> Motivating for sure. Incredible. Your superpower. Thank you. After our discussion, I took Dr. Earl's advice, looked in the mirror, and considered the world from my daughter's perspective. I brainstormed with both of them. My older daughter said I should put more focus on communicating what people can do to help by adding that information to my website. My younger daughter said I should write a book to better communicate climate change mitigation. I guess I have a lot of work ahead of me, but hey, that's what I can do. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Dr. Sylvia Earle has spent the better part of seven decades exploring the world's ocean and led more than 100 expeditions, logged over 7,000 hours underwater, and has authored more than 190 scientific, technical, and popular publications. 
She's been a witness of the impact humans have had on our oceans for almost 86 years and has dedicated her life to ocean conservation and mitigating climate change. Thank you.